Anyway, we're looking at this topic this summer of what it means to be created in the image of God. Uh, and we've been trying to trace through uh, the Bible's discussion of that, especially in the book of Genesis. Although we'll find in the weeks to come that the discussion ranges really throughout the entire Scripture. Uh, I've mentioned uh, a number of times that I'm borrowing very heavily from a wonderful book uh, by Richard Pratt, my Old Testament professor from seminary, called Designed for Dignity. In other words, to be created in the image of God means to be, uh, means that we as human beings are created with dignity. Uh, we've got uniqueness and we're, we're special, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, and the more we begin to try to understand what we are called to as Christians, the more you're going to have to investigate this question. What does God say I am? What does He say about what I am? Uh, I've tried to press upon you that there is a story which we are all actively believing. And we're either believing our own story about ourselves or we're believing God's story about ourselves. Uh, that's this whole discussion. So last week we ventured into this question of what is wrong with me? <laughs> and I tried to impress upon you uh, that there was a little bit of bad news to be uh, understood and I hope digested from Genesis chapter 3 when we see the problem that sin has caused for us. Uh, and the essence of the problem we tried to mention last week was summed up in the word helplessness. Our sin has left us without any ability to fix our situation. By the way, there's a lot of people that get very hung up in dealing with biblical Christianity about the question of free will. Right? What about free will? I mean, certainly we as human beings have free will, don't we? Doesn't the Bible teach that we all have a choice that we can make? Well, the interesting thing about that, without entering into the discussion about the idea of free will, you'll find that the Bible is nowhere near as interested in the freedom of your will as it is the ability of your will. Do you see the difference? In other words, we want to know that our choices are free, not influenced by anything else at all. The Bible wants to focus on the fact that your choices are influenced by your own condition. And it has nothing to do with whether you're free or not to make decisions. It has everything to do with whether your will is able to make the right decisions. I simply want to impress upon you from our discussion last week that the Bible stresses our inability. But actually, it's worse than that. <laughs> Because it's not only sort of made us in, unable to do what is right, we also believe that sin has even warped us in the process. In other words, it's, it's turned us into monsters. The image of God so marred in us has made it to where we delight in the fact that we're destroying ourselves. Now bear with me for a second because this confuses a lot of people when you get to Christian teaching about this. Surely you've come to this point in your life, and we talked about this last week a little bit, well, you're asking the question, why do I do the things that I do? Why do I keep doing the things that I'm told and even convinced of are bad for me? What's wrong with me? The Bible looks and says that there's a principle inside of you that makes you love your own destruction. Even when you're convinced intellectually, logically, and spiritually that what you're doing is bad for you. Messed up, right? Uh, Genesis 6.5 explains that. Who did, I forgot who we gave Genesis 6.5 to. Okay, read that out. Nice and loud. When the Lord saw how great was a man's wickedness on earth and how no desire that his heart conceived was ever anything but evil, he, cons he regretted that he had made man on the earth and his heart was grieved. That every instinct of his heart was only evil. 
Other translations will say, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And you can feel Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, we believe, stretching to try to get more adjectives to describe what your heart really is about. Um, uh, in other words, man has become destructive in its natural form. That's what I'm trying to say. It's now natural for us to inflict this kind of damage on our own souls. It's our basic human instinct. Okay? But I want you to notice that throughout the sort of early expressions of uh, human degradation, uh, there's a description that is the most vivid in the midst of it all. Especially when you begin to look at Genesis 4 through, say, Genesis 8 and 9. The Bible over and over again says that mankind was defined by violence. The earth God looks down and He sees is full of violence. In other words, the number one thing, the earliest sort of way in which we saw sin affecting the human race was through other human beings who delighted in destroying the image of God in someone else. They loved the destruction of other images of God. And you see the insult. Remember, the, the, the title of being an image of God comes from these ancient Near Eastern kings who would set up these images of themselves throughout their kingdom to remind their people of who was really in charge. So that when people went after those statues, like the freed Iraqi people did with Saddam Hussein's statue, it was a way of saying, not just we hate the statue, but we hate the, what the statue represents. And because every human being represented the authority of God, whenever people began to be violent against that image, God decided something had to be done. There was something that had to be done. There had to be judgment in the face of that. Um, okay, look, y'all. <laughs> Do I need to like try to illustrate for you that we are a violent, um, dr- violence-driven culture? You know, not just it's been more than just a few people who have noticed um, the proliferation of um, um, violent movies and of horror films. Right. Now, don't get me wrong. I recognize that in some way uh, 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 violence in movies is um, uh, is comic. You know, some of the old Friday the 13th movies, those are kind of comic violence where we're supposed to be like eeks, that kind of thing. But again, there's something to be said about a culture who craves the violent and who longs for violence, right? And who then extends, takes that next step to extend that violence uh, into other people. Um, you know, y'all, look at what's going on in the continent of Africa. Severe unrest going on among tribal, uh, tribal warfare. And it's nothing for the loss of life to uh, occur. Look at our own inner cities where desperation reigns. One of the first ways in which you see that, that um, uh, uh, those things occur is in violence to another creature. Look at our own, you know, white upper middle class in the way in which we continually belittle each other, in the way in which we condescend to each other. Every single act of hatred, whether it be in thought or in word or in deed, is violence against the image of God. And God says that's the highest expression of what sin will actually do to you, is it creates the violent. So here's the question. Is there any hope? The question I want to deal with tonight is, is there any hope in the midst of a violence-soaked circumstance? And the answer is yes. And we're going to look at it in two characters. First of all, in the character of Noah. Second of all, in the character of Abraham. What is the hope that we have to, to salvage the image of God 
as he comes to us across uh, uh, these creatures. Okay, first of all, let's look at the story of Noah. This is found in Genesis chapter uh, um, uh, 7, all the way through, or 6 actually beginning, all the way through to uh, Genesis chapter 9. You can flip over there if you want to take a look at it. Uh, look, if you look out my back window here uh, in my living room, you'll see that we, I, I planted a lovely, um, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, bed, garden in the back of my uh, yard. Uh, on the far ends, in the middle of which, we planted these lovely large crepe myrtles. I don't know if you've ever seen crepe myrtles. They're kind of the long, stalky bushes that if you let grow long enough, they get these nice stalks and these pretty flowered uh, tops on them. Well, last year, uh, I don't know if you remember, not this uh, last April, but the April before, we had a hard freeze that came in mid-April. It was really weird. Sometime the second weekend in April, uh, we had this the, you know, temperature bottomed out, went below uh, freezing, killed everybody's plants that had started to bloom uh, in March and April, my crepe myrtles included, you know. Um, and what Ginger and I really despaired of is that he killed the whole plant. But if we, what we found was, is if we just went in and took the dead branches and cut those off and cut them out, the rest of the thing flourished. Um, and you could look back there, and I think they look pretty nice right now after a year and a half's growth after that. But my opinion is biased. Um, y'all, that's what the flood was. God began to look at the creation, and he, began, and he says something very disturbing uh, 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 that we just had read for us, that God was sorry that he had created man in his image, right? And so um, God begins to do some cutting back, but he does the cutting back that he does so that the world could live again. As long as violence reigned among his creatures, there could be no human flourishing. And so Noah gets a promise in Genesis 5.29. Did I give that to somebody? Read Genesis 5.29 for me. That's Noah's father. Noah's father looked and said that his son was going to come bring relief. The word there can also be translated comfort, you know, hope. But you can imagine Noah living his life and realizing that, you know, he has come through this great judgment of the flood. And even on the other side of the flood, he knows for a fact that man is still sinful. Even though God did a great pruning of humanity and left his only faithful representative, Noah, Noah still knows that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all the time. And you can see, you can think about Noah despairing. You can think about Noah despairing in the way, the way that, that if you were really listening to me last week, you would feel in your own gut. Noah looked out and thought to himself, okay, look, here's my own sons who are capable of rebellion. And we find in the chapters after Genesis chapter 9 that even Noah's own sons begin to rebel. The problem of sin wasn't cured once we got rid of sort of the, uh, the victims of the flood. And Noah looks, but he's been through the judgment. And he's got to be thinking, you know, if God's going to do that every time we display the capabilities of our own sin, is there any hope that we have? Do any of us have any hope if we live with a God who is a, ju- a God of judgment? In other words, was what I saw in the flood, Noah wondered, just a preview of the ultimate end that God eventually is going to wipe us all out? And of course, the answer is no. Because God gives Noah a promise, and he promises to do something. Okay? Now, we come here to a word, a very packed, very dense, uh, very big, uh, important word to understand what the Old Testament is really about. And it's the word covenant. 
Now, for the sake of our discussion tonight, I simply want you, when you hear the word covenant, to think contract, to think promise, okay? To think a bond, something that attaches you to someone else. God looks at Noah, and for the first time the book of Genesis uses the word covenant. It's not the first time we have the concept of covenant, but it's the first time he uses the word covenant. And he looks and says, I am going to bind myself to you so that you can be certain that you're going to survive this and that there really can be a hope. Now, that covenant had two aspects. Aspect number one was this. God promised Noah, you know what, I'm going to make certain that there's going to be a regularity to life. Okay? Look at Genesis 8, uh, beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, listen carefully, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That's the first aspect of the covenant, is God looking at Noah and saying, Noah, I'm going to make certain that from now on, you can count on a certain regularity. There's going to be a predictability to life, Noah. Now, I don't know if you're at that age where you're looking kind of going, oh, by predictability, you mean boring. (laughs) Life as predictable is life that's slow. No, not so much. (laughs) That's not what God is saying. God is saying, Noah, I'm going to make sure that you know that generally speaking, tomorrow the sun will rise. This is one of the reasons why I love uh, that movie, uh, Castaway. Tom Hanks gets lost on this deserted island, uh, you know, and he goes back and finds out that his whole life has changed. He's changed. He can never go back. And everything in his life is unstable. And the night after his, uh, uh, the night after he comes back home, he looks over at his friend. And he says, "You know, the only thing I can hold on to is, is that tomorrow the sun will rise." <laughs> right? That is the covenant. That's God's promise to Noah. He's drawing hope off of something that God gave to him. And the predictability of life gives us that kind of stability. We look and we can take comfort in that fact, y'all. But there's something else. God looks and says, that's not all my promise. If that was all my promise, life would be mundane. But what I want to show you is, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky. Okay? This is what Genesis chapter 9 is all about. I'm going to give you a sign. Now, here's my question for you. And I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Why a rainbow? (laughs) We look at that and we think, that is so precious. A rainbow, it has pretty colors. And it's in the sky after a storm. Um... And God looks and says, every time you look at that, you're going to think about my promise to you, right? But what would that possibly do to us? Hmm, that's so lovely. God really is good about his promises. No, there's something far more profound that is found in a word that is masked in the English. Because the Bible looks and says, I will put my rain bow. But y'all, the word bow there doesn't mean like, like a bow like my little children used to wear, my daughters used to wear when they were small children, right? (laughs) There in those pictures up there, my children on the wall. You see, those are bows like we think of them. That's not the rainbow God's talking about. God is talking about a bow that is a battle bow, as, as it were, a bow and arrow. And God says, I am going to put, isn't this interesting, an image of violence in the sky. Isn't that interesting? that usually appears after the storm. 
Isn't that interesting, an image of violence? But let me but take this thing in that, a step further. And every single commentator noticed this. If the bow is rest in the sky, which way is it aiming? It's aiming up. There's a beautiful image there that C.H. Spurgeon drew upon. He said, from the time of God's covenant with Noah to now, God had an arrow always facing His own heart. You see, y'all, in the rainbow, we see a bow that is aimed at God's heart because God is saying, if the earth is full of violence, the only way it's going to be cured of that violence is if I absorb that violence myself. There in that moment is a glimpse of what is to come. It's a faint one. It's a mystical. And we don't know exactly how much of that Noah understood. But we see now that there was a a beauty to that image as it came in. Okay? Um, Look, and so therefore, God looks at Noah and says, I want you to fulfill your original purpose. Which is what? To be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion. In other words, God looks and says, here's my promise. Now go back to setting the world to rights. By the way, that's always the way it is. Who did I give Matthew 5, 13 and 14 to? This is the pattern of Christian teaching. Mac, read that for me. Yeah, I think. God says, you're salt now. Jesus comes along and affirms the exact same thing God told Noah to do. Now that I've given you the promise, I've now given you the ability, A, not to spread violence anymore, and B, to cure the world of its violence. Right? Because I've taken the ultimate sword. I have shot the ultimate arrow into my own heart. I will have bled the ultimate bleeding. You see where that's going. All right? Now, that may seem a little shadowy to you, so let's take the second figure, the figure of Abraham. Turn over to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. You see, God shows us a picture of Abram, this guy named Abram being called out of a heathen city, Ur of the Chaldees. And he looks and makes these incredibly great promises to Abram. He looks and says, I'm going to make your name great. Everybody's going to hear about you. Your descendants will be like the sand of the shore. I've got this great land that I'm going to bring you into. And every single person on the earth is going to be blessed because of what I'm going to do in your family. Not just your family, but people outside of your family are going to be blessed for what I'm going to do in you. And Abram doubts him. Abram looks and goes, you know, really? How do I know this? Because the time in which God had made these promises, Abram looks and goes, but I'm old. You keep promising me with children. And all the promises that you've made for me depend on me having children. And yet here I remain childless. I'm as good as dead, it says in the book of Hebrews, right? And he looks around and he begins to despair. Once again, bringing us back to that point where we were last week. When you listen to the Bible describe your condition in sin, you are always tempted to despair. And that's exactly where Abram Abram found himself. And suddenly gets depressed when he starts to think through these promises. How is it possible that God is going to make good on His assurances that He gave to me that He was going to fix me and the world through me? How in the world is He going to do that? Have you ever wrestled with that? You know, some of you may have come to a grasp of the gospel at a very early age and understood on some level, maybe not a deep level, but some level that Jesus was going to work in you, that He was working in you, and that, and that He had worked in you, and you were excited to see where it was going. <laughs> and how long did it take before you were utterly discouraged? Discouraged with yourself, discouraged with your friends, discouraged with your church. 
exactly where Abram is. And all of a sudden, he begins to notice something. I'll give you two points that he tells to Abraham here, to Abram. First, you have to notice that it is your helplessness that has to be grasped before you can understand the remedy. Helplessness leads you to the remedy so that you can't get to the remedy without the helplessness. We don't have a concept of what it means to draw upon God's grace in our life until we understand that we are presently drawing poison out of life. Right? What Pratt says is this. He says, God has spoken wonderful words of promise. I will grant you dignity in Christ, but we don't have the power to reach that glorious destiny. In other words, we look and say, on the one hand, these are all wonderful things, but I don't know how to get it. And you have just taken the first step. Step number one has always got to be despair. Always. (laughs) Right? And it leads us to where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter uh, 15. Because in that helplessness, God can show His power. But He shows that the nature of His power only makes sense in helplessness. You don't get the power that I'm bringing until you see that you're helpless. Uh, And so God began to think of a way in which He could show Abram how He was going to make good on His promise to absolutely bless him. And so all of a sudden there in verse 9, we get God saying something very bizarre. It's so bizarre that it's worth looking at. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. Okay? This is what God says. He says, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in halves. And when the birds of prey came down with the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, the first time you read this when you're reading the Bible, you've got to come across that and be like, okay, what was that? Why in the world would he take these animals and hack them to death? The heifer's a cow, right? Now, imagine that scene, by the way. I mean, uh, how are you supposed to get that thing in half? Uh, that's a bloody, disgusting uh, 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 scene, if you think about it. Anyway, but Abram does it. What in the world are they doing? Well, it turns out, and we get this in other places of the Bible, that Abram is getting ready to enact a promise. Very interesting promise. Because in Old Testament times, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, when you began to make a promise, you acted it out. When you made the big promises life, you acted it out. By the way, this is what we do in weddings all the time. I tried to mention this at the wedding that I did this last weekend for Sarah Tyson and Samuel. When we do do a wedding, those are big promises. And so we act those promises out by the very movements that we do inside the ceremony. Well, that's exactly what's going on in Genesis 15. God said, I want you to lay these animals apart. They're bloody, gory mess. And what typically would happen is that both parties who were making the promise to each other would walk, sort of ceremonially so, through the pieces as if to say... May this, pointing down at the sacrifices, happen to me if I ever break my promises to you. Now, I want you to think about what Abram's doing while he's hacking (laughs) these heifers in half, right? What is he thinking? He's thinking to himself, well, this is no good. God's getting ready to come. We're going to go do this ceremony here. And that means that he's going to pass through and he's going to make me pass through too. In other words, God is going to sit here and I'm going to have to look at him and say that I've got to make good on my side of the promise. 
Abram probably was terrified. No wonder he was having nightmares. You find out in the last half of chapter of chapter 15 and verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Well, no kidding. He was thinking that he was going to have to come and make a promise with God to fulfill his side of the bargain. Ah, but that ain't what happened, was it? Suddenly in that vision state of a dream, Abram looks up and he sees a smoking, burning ball of fire that looks to him like an oven or a boiling pot. And whenever God showed up in the Old Testament, it always looked kind of like that. He came as a burning, smoking ball of flame. And Abram looks up and that passes through the pieces. And not once in Genesis chapter 15 is Abram asked to pass through the pieces himself. And do you get the promise? <laughs> this is kind of huge. R.C. Sproul once said that if he could only have, if he was set on a desert island and could only have one chapter in the whole Bible, it would be Genesis chapter 15. Because there you see God looking and saying, Abram, I know how helpless you are. And I want you to know that I am going to bless you and I'm going to bless the world through you. And the truth of the matter is, I'm not just going to fulfill my side of the bargain. I'm going to fulfill your side too. It's not just my sense of the, of the, of the promises that I'm going to fulfill. I'm going to fulfill your side too. Could Abram have had any idea of what God was going to have to do to make good on those promises? Because a few thousand years later, the Son of God came Himself and became on the cross, forgive me, a bloody mess so that He could look and say, I am going to become what you should have become in order to guarantee for you that I'm going to bless you, to absolutely secure for you the blessings. God says, I'm going to take the curse for even your failures to uphold your end of the bargain. Y'all, listen to this. Because <laughs> this is one of the reasons why you've struggled with your Christianity up until now, if you've struggled at all. The reason why our Christianity remains so distant is because we always picture ourselves as being distant from its essence. Distant from its joy. Because the joy of what Jesus is saying here, of what God is saying to Abram, is that I'm going to secure both sides. You can't screw this up as long as you maintain a posture of helplessness before me. And so the only thing that will mess you up is your stinking pride. The more you start to think that you can pull this off yourself and become self-reliant and self-dependent, the further you're going to get away from the power that I'm going to bring you by showing you that you are in my hands. And how that works out is what we're going to look at in the next two weeks. But I want you all to simply just wash yourself in this for a little bit because you and I have so much more than Abram had. Look, Abram only saw through a glass darkly. Y'all, we saw what God actually had to do. Look, the Israelite history from Genesis 15 on is pathetic. I don't know how many of you went to Christ Press Sunday, but you know, Pastor Kurt was talking about this this Sunday. You read through the Old Testament, you're going, what is with these people? <laughs> do they ever get it? Answer, never. <laughs> and what makes you think that you're somehow going to pull it off? God looks and says, I'm going to deal with humble people. I'm going to deal with people who look and say that it is only by His power that I'll be redeemed. And so here's the question. Where is your hope for dignity? 
Does it still rest in something that you've got to conjure up in your own person? Because if it does, A, you're a very insecure Christian. B, I'll bet you're not a very holy Christian. And C, there's no rest in your life. There's no sense of peace. A feeling as if I'm right with the word, with the world. The New Testament way of asking you that question is, where is your faith? Do you even have faith? The essence of faith is to look at God with a measure of dependence.